A group of private jets were stranded on a runway in Munich due to a massive ice storm. The runways, the frigid temperatures had the runways frozen solid. The jets were heading to a conference on global warming. You cannot make this stuff up. This massive snowstorm in Munich, blizzard, I mean ice storm. The, the, the runways were described as having turned into glaciers. Private jets headed to global warming conference in Dubai were literally frozen on the runway. But, but, Yaakov, that's only the weather. You can't, that's not climate. That's not climate change. That's not, that doesn't mean that the earth is not warming because that's the weather, not the climate. You know, it's amazing how like, when, remember in the summer, remember when Death Valley hit like 127 degrees, there were like these extreme heat temperatures happening all over the globe. And they told us, you see, climate change is real. Greta Thunberg is right. You see global warming. It's happening. But that that's the climate. That's not the weather. But when there's this ice blizzard storm and the runways turn into glaciers and the private jets can't make it to Dubai for the co- climate conference, that's the climate. That's not the weather. That, that's just the weather. And what's amazing is they're taking private jets to this climate conference, but the media doesn't say a word about it. I mean, what, what do you expect these people to fly commercial? I mean, you expect them. They're not regular people like you and me. You expect them to sit there in first class and get wined and dined? No, no, no. That, that's that's how the little people live. That's not how the climate elitists live. Meanwhile, Republic and what's the most amazing about this climate conference, we'll get to it shortly. We're going to play you a stunning clip. The head of the conference, the head of the conference, who's some Arab billionaire, he's a climate denier. And we have the clip to prove it. Republicans in the Senate blocked a bill that would send funding to Israel and Ukraine. Every Republican and Bernie Sanders, by the way, for different reasons, decided to block this bill in the Senate that would send funding to Ukraine and to Israel. And Bernie Sanders, he's upset that Israel is guilty of all these civilian casualties. So that's why he refuses to send funding to Israel. The Republicans, as we've told you, they're politicizing this. They want to, every side, they're all politicizing it. The Democrats are politicizing it. The Republicans are politicizing it. They love it when there's funding that is desperately needed, something that's really, really badly needed, because then they get to stuff what they want to pass into it and claim that the other side is the one who's politicizing it. It's it's disgraceful. But, he, but either way, the Republicans, they want it to include border funding, which it does not. Coming up, we will bring you the latest on the war in Gaza. Mike Johnson, House Speaker, he is ready to release all the January 6th footage. But the problem is that once it's released, the FBI can then use that footage to actually prosecute protesters, prosecute Trump supporters. So Mike Johnson has a brilliant solution. We will tell you about that coming up. Hunter Biden has agreed to testify in Congress, but he says only if it's a publicly televised hearing. I say bring it on. That sounds good to me. I would love to see. I mean, what could be more uh, thrilling than seeing Hunter Biden's live testimony? Imagine watching Hunter Biden be grilled by Jim Jordan about Burisma and about the firing of the prosecutor. All right, all of that is coming up. Welcome to the Yakovem Show on VIN News, Yeshiva International, Nucky Radio, other podcasting platforms. Send us an email. Josh at VINnews.com, Josh at VINnews.com. A caller made the point, you know, the debate between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News. So there's a really interesting little moment there, a little clip where uh, Gavin Newsom corrected DeSantis in his pronunciation of Kamala Harris. Kamala, oh, whoops, I mean Kamala Harris. And, and essentially was like hinting that Ron DeSantis 
was being a racist by calling her Kamala, not Kamala, the same old insanity. We've made fun of this for for years, and it actually happened. I went back and I checked this out because the caller made this observation, and and it's actually true that it's kind of, he's kind of muttering it under he's like in between trying to get a word in edgewise, and DeSantis is kind of talking and mentions Kamala. And Gavin Newsom says, you mean Kamala? And he keeps talking over him to say, it's like ignoring, like he probably didn't even know what he was talking about. And he keeps saying, Kamala, Kamala, not Kamala. And then they kind of just moved on. But the implication is, if you pronounce her name, and I have no idea why nobody has ever been able, we've made fun of this and ridiculed it, but it's real. They, the, 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 the Democrats, they really, really somehow believe that referring to her as Kamala, and I have no idea what the original pronunciation, I don't know what language the name Kamala even is, I think it's some kind of African name. Uh, If you say it Kamala, you're a racist. If you say Kamala, then you're a wonderful, woke, leftist, liberal person. Makes no sense. What's the difference between Kamala and Kamala? But he actually, he literally corrected him multiple times. You mean Kamala, not Kamala? You can't make this stuff up. Like, what's the difference? It's like, if you say people of color then you're uh, a woke leftist. They respect you. You're a good person. You're a person who cares about minorities. If you say colored people, they ban you. You literally will get fired from your job if you say colored people, but you say people of color. Can you imagine somebody, you know, going to, to work and saying, oh, yeah, look at that colored person, or, yeah, I care about colored people. I respect colored people. Oh, colored people? You're fired. Get out of here. You're banned. You're banned from Facebook and Twitter. Uh, But what do you mean? I was just copying Barack Obama. Barack Obama calls them colored people. No, no, he calls them people of color. You call them colored people. Well, what's the difference? I mean, even when you think about it, the the Negro League, there was something baseball used to have, you know, before they, you know, when it was segregated, before they integrated blacks and whites, baseball had the Negro League. And if, if somebody calls it the Negro League, they're referring to it as what it was. But if, like, you just change that word a little bit, you're in very big trouble. They put you before the firing squad. I'm not defending the use of these words. Let me be very, very clear. But, like, the the rules are bizarre. The, the, the parameters, they literally make it up as they go along. All right, so the head of the climate conference, there's a climate conference, big climate conference going on, the one that the private jets couldn't get to because they were frozen solid on the runways. So the head is an oil tycoon in the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates. The conference is in Dubai, and he actually says that there's no scientific evidence we're going to play you. This is a stunning clip. This is a bombshell clip that the media is totally ignoring. And the climate activists are livid. They're beside themselves because this is the person who's in charge uh, he's heading, hosting the climate conference. He's also He also happens to be an Arab oil tycoon. And he says there's no scientific evidence to suggest that you need to eliminate fossil fuels in order to prevent global warming. And he believes in global warming, but they're calling him a climate denier. This is so the, the name of this conference is COP28, whatever exactly that stands for, COP28 or COP28. And uh, Sultan Al-Jaber, he says you cannot, fa- he says if you phase out fossil fuels, then you're going to send us back into the caves. And he says there's no science. And this is a man who seems to know the science. That's the, see, that's what's so damaging to these climate wackos is when somebody actually studies the science and knows the science and says, you people are wrong. But he says in order to restrict global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is what their goal is, he says no data, no science, and no evidence indicates that phasing out fossil fuels would make sense. And he says that it, it, it doesn't even, it won't even work. It's not sustainable unless you want to take the world 
back into caves. So I will play this clip literally in just a moment, and he's kind of debating it, hashing it out with, with, with the former U.N. Special Envoy for Climate Change, Mary Robinson. The voice you're going to hear in addition to this Al Jabber is Mary Robinson. She's the former president of Ireland, and she's the former uh, head uh, U.N. Special Envoy for climate change. So Antonio Gutierrez, the head of the UN, he's saying that the comments were incredibly concerning and he literally says that they verge on climate denial. So this Al Jaber, he's like Trump. He's a, he's a climate denier. Pretty astonishing. So let me just set this up for you here. In this clip, he's responding. This Al Jaber is responding. This Mary Robinson said, quote, we're in an absolute crisis hurting women and children. And it's because we have not yet committed to phasing out fossil fuel. That is the one decision COP28, which is the name of this conference because it's like 28 countries or whatever, can take and in many ways. You're the head of ADNOC. The head of ADNOC is that's the UAE's state oil company. So she's saying that he has more credibility because of that. So he actually is the head of the UAE's oil company, ADNOC, and he's also heading this climate conference and he's not interested in phasing out fossil fuels. Gee, I wonder why. Listen to this clip. It's, I, mean, I want to warn you, it's a little bit long, but I, I think it's well worth it. So listen to this clip. I accepted to come to this uh, to this meeting to have a sober and a mature uh, conversation. Uh, we do not. I'm not in any way signing up to any discussion that is alarmist. I am here factual, and I respect the science. And there is no science uh, out there, or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my north star, and a phase down and a phase out of fossil fuel. In my view, is inevitable. It is essential, but we need to be real, serious, and pragmatic about it. But the real, serious, and pragmatic doesn't take into account that we are in. I mean, I, I respect that you've done a lot of hard work preparing for this COP and that you've listened to the science. The science is very acute now. We don't have any time. They say six or seven years. We've got to peak by 2025. My- latest in fossil fuel, you, you, um, new fossil fuel, and your company is investing in a lot more new fossil fuel, and that's 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 going to hurt women. Uh, ma'am, <laughs> you've, you've just accused me of something that is not correct. I'm sorry, I don't take it. Now I ask you to prove to I, me. I, I read that how... your company is is investing in a lot more fossil fuel in the future. Yes, ma'am, you're reading true? you're reading your own media, which is biased and wrong. I am telling you, I am the man in charge, and it is wrong, ma'am. You need to listen to me. Please, I'm, I'm please, very, for I'm very once. pleased to hear it. I'm very pleased to hear it. It is wrong. You guys write a lie, and you believe it. I'm well, sorry. I, I do not I accept it. What I, see, um, I am not accepting this. I'm sorry. I am sorry. I respect you, and I do not accept any false accusations. I've been very clear about my position. This is wrong. And you're asking for a phase out of fossil fuel. Please help me, show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow, that will allow for socio, for sustainable socio-economic development. Unless you want to take the world back into caves. <laughs> show me. Yeah. I think we can. We have, we, we have can. eight billion. Women, give women me the solution. will be part of that. Give me the solution. Give, you talk about having women be involved. We in this small country have included women more than any other country in the world. 
It's unbelievable. And the incredible part is the reason he's such a threat is because he knows the data, he knows the science, and he's saying there is no such thing. Show me the roadmap aside from the fact that he says you're sending us back to the caveman era because it's not sustainable, because you want to phase out fossil fuels. It's insanity. Bill Hare, chief executive of Climate Analytics, said, quote, this is an extraordinary, revealing, worrying, and belligerent exchange. Sending us back to the caves is the oldest fossil fuel industry trope. It's verging on climate denial. No, he's a climate denier. This person's in charge of the climate conference in Dubai. He's a climate denier because he's saying, I want to phase out. He's saying, I want to phase down fossil fuels. I want to reduce carbon emissions. I want to reduce fossil fuels. But you just you can't take it down to zero and expect not to become a caveman. All right. So the media keeps talking about how President Trump, if he's reelected, will become a dictator. And this is the new tactic here is threaten everybody. We tried indicting him. We tried all the impeachment. We tried January 6th. He just keeps getting more and more popular. Uh Oh, what do we do now? Oh, he's going to be a dictator. He's going to weaponize the DOJ. He's going to use the DOJ as his own personal KGB, his own vendetta machine to target opposition, his own opposition to target opposition candidates, politicians that he doesn't like. How laughable is it? How comical is it that like this is the threat that Trump is going to use the DOJ as a weapon to advance his political agenda and to target his opponents and throw his opponents in jail? He's the victim of that. That's exactly what he's going through. They told us the same thing in 2016 and never ended up happening. They told us he was going to lock up Hillary Clinton. I wish he had. I wish he had locked up Joe Biden. I wish he had locked up Comey and all these other crooks. And this is what they're taking. He literally, this is the bizarro world, the twisted world where the exact thing that Trump is a victim of, which is that Biden and Obama and the deep state and the Democrats, they use the DOJ to target him and to indict him and maybe even put him in jail. Who knows? And they're sitting there with a straight face, ignoring that, not even realizing the irony of this Trump. He's a dictator. He actually he's going to install an attorney general who's going to then go indict his his political opponents, his enemies. That's what he's doing. And listen, I want to use logic here for a moment in terms of who would be the best possible choice for president. Let's let's knock out. We obviously don't think the Democrats would be. So let's talk about the Republican candidates. Okay, you have Trump and you have everybody else. DeSantis, Nikki Haley, whoever you want to throw into the mix is fine with me. Okay, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Ramaswamy. There I go again. I don't know why. So uh, I have simple logic over here. You have there's two candidates in the whole mix who are running for president, who are already president. There's nobody else who's actually a proven commodity who already was the president. There's only two. Biden is obviously the Democrat. Trump, not Nikki, not any of the other candidates, not Vivek, Ramaswamy, not Ron DeSantis. Okay, it's only Trump. So you have two candidates who were president, all the others were not. So we actually have a track record very often. In, you know, in 2016, we had basically... No track record in terms of somebody who was already a president. In 2008, you had no person who was already president. We actually have candidates who are already president. And then we have candidates who are not already president. So how then doesn't it make perfect logical sense in terms of who's going to be a good president? If you know that somebody already was a successful president, doesn't logic dictate that that person is your best bet? Well, but what about this? But what about this negative? That negative January 6th and Diamond... I have a proven commodity. I already have somebody who was there and did the job I wanted him to do. So you have now Trump was extremely successful. You have the other candidate. Biden was a total failure. 
But all the others are unknown commodities. So from a logical standpoint, now I'm not talking about electability. You're going to say to me, yeah, but Trump, all of his negatives, he's not electable. So maybe you're right. If Trump gets into office, then he'd be the best president we could possibly hope for. But DeSantis is more electable. I don't know how anybody thinks DeSantis or Nikki Haley or anybody could even begin to know how electable. Even that is an unproven commodity. But let's put that aside. But from a standpoint of policy, of leadership, of actually, if they're in the White House, how could anybody sit here and start to tell me Nikki Haley is going to be a better president than Trump? You have no basis. How could you possibly know? She's never had that kind of pressure, the media scrutiny. She'll get either impeached or they'll threaten her with impeachment and everything else under the sun. They'll investigate her and come up with all, all sorts of, you know, different uh, witch hunts. So it just from a logical standpoint to me, it's literally a no Brainer, But then, like, the Trump dictator thing, here's the problem with the Trump dictator uh, notion, okay, that with that theory, is that they told us this in 2016. They, they literally, in 2016, remember, lock her up, lock her up, they were chanting that at the rallies, and they said how Trump is going to weaponize the DOJ, and look at the irony, that's exactly what happened to him, and he was the victim, but that's not the point. They're, they're, now they're going and playing, they're playing clips of Trump from 2016, and they're playing clips of all these analysts of all these political analysts and pundits in 2016 saying Trump's going to be a dictator, Trump's going to lock up his opponents, Trump is going to weaponize. Now, once, and remember they told us Trump is going to start all these wars, he's going to be a warmonger, right? The only president in how many years, how many decades to not have a war under his under his watch. But the point is, every single time they predict, they play me a prediction for 2016 where Trump is going to be a dictator, he was not. That's actually proof that it's not going to happen. They keep playing these clips in 2016 of predictions that Trump is going to become a dictator and Trump is going to lock up Hillary and his opponent. He did not do that, okay? So they predicted he would do it. He did not do it, and they had reason, every bit as reason to believe that as now because he uses this hyperbole and he talks he talks a big talk and he talks strong and tough, and maybe even deep down he wants to do it, but he didn't do it. And and I think he probably should do it this time around, by the way. I think he should lock Hillary up and, and lock Joe up and lock Hunter up and teach these people a lesson, but that's not even the issue. The point is that anytime you show me in 2016, you were you, 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 this was your, what you were predicting, and your the alarmism, and then it turns out it did not actually happen. If anything, is proof that we should ignore it now because the same way it didn't happen then, now should really be no different. And it's like, oh no, but this time is really different. This time Trump's really going to do it. Like I said, I don't even think that's a bad thing, but I've been hearing that for seven years. For seven years, I've been hearing this time is different. This time is different. Now, Liz Cheney's on a book tour. Of course, she's on CNN. She's on MSNBC. She's a, you know, a, a huge, huge, huge enemy of Trump. And she's and, and they're fawning over her and gushing over her on these networks. They love it when a Republican flips and turns against Trump or anybody, any Republican for that matter. And, uh, you know, she she's it's pretty interesting. She actually I heard her on this interview and she said that she was ready to tweet. This just says everything you need to know about these candidates, how phony they are. She says at one point, you know, she says Trump hasn't even been a Republican for very long. And she said at one point I was going to put out a tweet that Trump, that I've been a Republican longer than Trump was in the tanning salon. Or she was going to have some kind of line there, some kind of dig against Trump having a fake tan, whatever that even means. I don't, I, I'm not knowledgeable about these areas don't care one bit about these areas, but something like that, that I've been a Republican, me, Liz Cheney, longer than Trump has been in the tanning salon or some line. Whatever the tweet was, it was supposed to be some sort of entertaining tweet that was disparaging against Trump. She says, but my media advisor, my press advisor told me, don't put out that tweet. So I didn't put out that tweet. But what she was admitting that she was just kind of throwing out this line, whatever, about Trump, this throwaway line talking about how Trump's not even a Republican. But that's not the point. The point is that 
Look at what she was saying. I had an entertaining tweet. I had a tweet that was critical of my opponent. I had a tweet that I think probably would have gotten a lot of attention. I'm not saying good tweet, bad tweet. I think it was distasteful tweet, but that's not the point. The point is she had a tweet that she felt was a good dig against Trump, but her media relation person, right, her media strategist said, bad idea, don't put out this tweet. So, therefore, she did not tweet the thing she wanted to tweet. What does that tell you? She doesn't tweet what's on her mind. She doesn't, she's, she's a phony. She's a total phony, like all these politicians. They don't tweet based on what they really believe or what they really feel. They want to tweet, want to share. They tweet based on, well, what does my media strategist say? Well, is this going to get me in trouble? Is this going to make me go down to the polls? Trump is the only one who's genuine and authentic. He puts out a tweet. He's sitting there. He doesn't check with people. He doesn't take polls. He doesn't ask his media strategist or else three quarters of the tweets would never even make it, would never even be posted, right? Because Trump is real. He's authentic. He's genuine. He's sincere. He tells you what he believes and you can always count on it. And the, and, and she, she literally admitted it there in that one line in that interview. All right. So an update on the war in Gaza. And of course, we have this big story that we're going to get to shortly. Uh, this, 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 this story about this blockbuster from the New York Times. And I haven't really seen anybody quite deny this, that uh, Israel, the Israeli government, the Israeli military, Intel, they had access to this 40-page document detailing uh, the, the, the plan, the massacre, the terror attack, the Shemini Atzeret Simchas terror, terror attack, which was carried out, of course, and they, months ago, they, you know, they dismissed it. They didn't feel that Hamas had the capability, uh, according to this report. Look, all this is alleged. We have no idea. But they reviewed emails. There's a lot, a lot of evidence that this story is based on, basically telling, you know, and it sounds like Hamas, they followed the game plan that was outlined in this paper, in this document, in stunning, stunning detail. And uh, Israeli intel officials, they saw this document. Some of them took it seriously. Many of them dismissed it. And uh, then, of course, it actually came to fruition. So we'll get to those details coming up. But first, an update. Uh, Khan Yunus. Khan Yunus is a city in southern Gaza, and that's considered the biggest stronghold or one of the biggest strongholds of the Hamas terror group. It is now surrounded by the IDF. The IDF now essentially has taken control over the outskirts, and they're surrounding Khan Yunus. So it doesn't mean they actually are controlling all the streets, but they have secured and locked down the area. Now, the Khan Yunus Brigade is one of uh, two of Hamas's most significant brigade, and the city is identified as a symbol of Hamas's military and authoritative rule. Here's a quote um, from... Uh, Let's see. I don't know who. So somebody somebody in the IDF, some spokesman said, quote, the entire leadership of the Hamas terrorist organization, both military and political, proliferated in the area of Khan Yunus. Among them, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Sinwar, and Mohammed Diyef. Currently, the area is secured by the 98th Division, end quote. So what they, and, and they are saying that they believe it's only a matter of time till Sinwar. Sinwar, of course, is the mastermind. He was traded one of the one of the the. Uh, prisoners who was traded in terrorists traded in swap in the Gilad Shalit swap, and Sinwar, of course, was the mastermind behind this entire attack. And they're saying that they have Sinwar surrounded, or that they he's in a tunnel somewhere hiding, and they are eventually going to find him. I, I'm curious if if they really will, or if it'll be that easy. I, I, I certainly, obviously, we hope that they do. But uh, the Israeli government making it sound like it's only a matter of time till till Sinwar is captured or killed. Bernie Sanders, I, you know, we mentioned this earlier that he opposed the bill to fund Israel. This is a $110 billion aid package that would include Ukraine, Israel, 
and a bunch of other humanitarian aid for Gaza, a bunch of other things, not funding for the southern border wall security. But here's what Bernie Sanders, his reason for opposing this, and this is disgraceful, quote, at a time when 16,000 Palestinians have been killed in the last two months. I'll interject here. That's not true. That's based on the, the Gaza Health Ministry, okay, which is worthless. It's, it, it, it's literally run by Hamas. So that number is meaningless. Bernie Sanders says two-thirds of whom are women and children, and more than 40,000 have been injured. I do not think we should be appropriating $10 billion for the right-wing extremist Netanyahu government. Um, meanwhile, the IAF, the Air Force, carried out 250 strikes on Hamas positions over 24-hour 24 24-hour period Tuesday and Wednesday. The IDF said ground troops are actively engaged in local, lo- locating and neutralizing Hamas's military assets, including weapons, tunnels, explosives, and other infrastructure. Uh, um, Netanyahu said late on Tuesday that the IDF will maintain control over Gaza long after the war is over. Because the Biden administration, they keep pressuring Netanyahu. They say you cannot, Israel cannot stay in control over Gaza. They're saying the Palestinians have to take over. They want the PA. They want Mahmoud Abbas, who's another terrorist leader. They want him to take over. And Netanyahu insists that it's not going to happen. And Netanyahu told reporters, quote, no international force can be responsible for this, meaning Gaza. I'm not ready to close my eyes and accept any other arrangement. Uh, meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal is reporting the IDF has killed about half of Hamas's mid-level battalion commanders. That's a very big deal, very significant, because it hampers Hamas's ability. And Hamas is huge. What this whole thing has, 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 has exposed is that the tentacles of Hamas, the tens of thousands of troops and militants and terrorists that are part of the Hamas network and, you know, a very, very structured, very well-organized and coordinated it almost boggles the mind, you know, that they were able to do this all under the radar because they're almost like their own running their own like military, like almost like their own country. But um, this hampers Hamas's ability to act cohesively in Gaza and to coordinate their defense. So that's a very big deal. That's probably why they wanted that ceasefire was to help them do that. Israel says they've killed 5000 Hamas troops, but the leaders of the group remain alive. Like I mentioned, Sinwar, of course, and Mohammed Diaf, who leads the uh, Hamas organization's militants, they are both alive and they are believed to be in tunnels in Khan Yunus, according to the Wall Street Journal. Meanwhile, Joe Biden continues to pressure Israel to be more careful to try to spare civilian casualties as much as possible and to be more targeted and more surgical. Anthony Blinken had a very heated meeting last Thursday with Bibi Netanyahu, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and IDF Chief of Staff Hertzi Halevi, um, to discuss the attack on the South, which includes Khan Yunus. And Blinken told the Israelis, he said, you cannot operate, this is according to reports, you cannot operate in the South the way you did in the North. He said, we're only going to support the attack on the South for several weeks, not months. And, uh, and, and by the way, it's going to take much longer than that. So Blinken, it's, it's not at all reasonable. And I don't know how much they're going to actually pressure Netanyahu or if it's just bluster and just talk. But according to the report here, this is leaked. By, the, 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 this is leaked to the media. Blinken told Netanyahu and that team, "Quote: You cannot operate in southern Gaza the way you did in the north. There are two million Palestinians there. 
You need to evacuate fewer people from their homes. You need to be more accurate. You cannot hit U.N. facilities. I would think that they should specifically hit U.N. facilities, by the way. And you have to ensure, by the way, there's a report that the U.N., UNRWA, U.N. Relief Works Agency, which is supposed to be humanitarian group that helps Gazan civilians, Palestinian civilians, they're hoarding, and they're known to be corrupt, and they're another wing of Hamas. So there's a report they're actually hoarding supplies and not allowing the supplies, hoarding it for Hamas, not allowing them to get into the hands of the civilians who need them. No surprise there. But he says you've got to have protected area for civilians. And he says you cannot attack where there's a civilian population. And Halevi responded, quote, we follow a number of principles. There were instances where we attacked on the basis of those principles. Instances we decided not to attack. We wait for a better opportunity. Galant said the entire Israeli society is united behind the goal of dismantling Hamas, even if it takes us months. And Blinken said back, I don't think you have the credit for that. So Blinken basically saying, like, sorry, like, we're not going to let you get away with that. And Israel saying, too bad. And and when they talked about Gaza, who's going to control Gaza once this is over, Blinken said, quote, you don't want the Palestinian Authority on there the day after. I understand that we understand that the best way to kill an idea is to bring a better idea. Uh, the other states in the region need to know what you're planning. And Bibi Netanyahu responded, quote, as long as I'm sitting in this chair, the PA, which supports, educates and finances terror, will not rule Gaza on the day after Hamas. Then Blinken held a joint press conference uh, with the Israelis and he said that uh, he insisted that Israel take responsibility for minimizing civilian harm. So they keep doing that. They keep pressuring Biden and Blinken, keep pressuring Israel. And it's really, really disgraceful. And uh, again, as far as what's going to happen after, you know, Netanyahu is saying, we're not letting anybody else control Gaza after this is all said and done. Meanwhile, it sounds like it may take months until Hamas is dismantled. You know, so unfortunately, this is not ending anytime soon. All right, let's get to this. Big story in the New York Times. I'll just go through a bunch of excerpts over here. Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack over a year before it happened. This is according to documents, emails, and interviews that were reviewed by the authors of this story, including a man named Ronan Bergman, who's a uh, an Israeli journalist. Israeli military and intel officials dismissed the plan as aspirational. They considered it too difficult for Hamas to carry out. The 40-page document outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that took place. And the document described a methodical assault designed to overwhelm the fortifications around Gaza, take over Israeli cities and storm key military bases, including one division headquarters, And according to the Times, Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset, drones to knock out security cameras, automated machine guns along the border, and gunmen to pour into Israel in paragliders on motorcycles and on foot. All of those things took place. The plan also included details about the location and size of Israeli military forces, communication hubs, and other sensitive information. So I just want to interject over here. You know, we keep wondering, how was the intel community, how did the Israeli intelligence agencies not, how were they not aware, how could this thing have been planned, and they have no heads up, no information, no intel whatsoever? This certainly makes more sense. It's still bizarre that they could just underestimate the enemy like this and just kind of dismiss it. But it makes more sense to me. It's starting to, you know, the the pieces, the puzzle pieces are fitting into place a little bit more. Although it's still a head scratcher. You know, you always have to take your enemy at face value. Like I say, if Iran says they're enriching uranium 75%, you don't say, well, they're probably not. They're exaggerating. You hope they're exaggerating, but you assume the worst. You always have to assume the worst. Now, they can take advantage. I get it. They can start putting out all sorts of stories. It'll make you chasing your tail. It'll make it impossible to defend against. But here, they just had to fortify the wall. They just had to literally... 
just make sure there were thousands of troops at the southern border with Gaza at all times and not just rely on the, the automated systems and the cameras and the wall, but actually have just a presence of thousands of troops there at all time. It seems like a pretty straightforward solution over here. If you take it seriously, it's not like Hamas would be manipulating Israel into doing something that was very, very harmful, at least in my kind of amateur opinion. So uh, let's see over here. The, the the plan included details about the location and size of Israeli military forces uh, that raised questions about how Hamas gathered its intel, whether there were leaks inside the Israeli security establishment. There are people who believe there had to have been spies within the Israeli security establishment. Documents circ- circulated amongst Israeli military and intel leaders. Experts said that an attack of that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas capabilities. It is unclear whether Prime Minister Netanyahu or other top political leaders ever saw this document. Now, that's what the Times says. Very hard to believe this document is circulating and was not seen by Netanyahu, but it sounds like there is no proof that it was. Uh, in July, uh, a veteran analyst with Unit 8200, which is Israel's Signals Intelligence Agency, warned that Hamas conducted an intense day-long training exercise that appeared very similar to the plan that was outlined in the blueprint. So they're actually training, and their training resembles, very, very strongly resembles this plan that was in this document, and now they're training for it. However, a colonel in the Gaza division brushed off this analyst's concerns. According to emails that were reviewed by the Times, the analyst said, quote, I utterly refute the scenario as imaginary. Basically, this analyst, she is saying that she witnessed this Hamas training exercise, and it fully matched the content of this 40-page document. And she says this is a plan designed to start a war. It's not just one raid on one village. And she was like ur- urgently sounding the alarms, but it was dismissed by other, by basically top military officials. Officially, officials privately concede that if the military had taken the warning seriously, they could have redirected re- reinforcements to the south and prevented the attacks or at the very least blunted and minimized the attacks. And uh, underspinning all, underpinning all these failures was a single fatally inaccurate belief that Hamas lacked the capability to attack and would not dare do so. The belief was so ingrained in the Israeli government that they disregarded growing evidence to the contrary. It's pretty astonishing. It's pretty stunning. The Israeli military and the Israeli security agency uh, declined to comment about this. And uh, officials did not say how they obtained this document, but it detailed rocket attacks, like I said, to distract Israeli soldiers send them rushing into bunkers, drones to disable the elaborate security measures along the border fence. Hamas fighters would then break through 60 points in the wall, storming the border. Um, Pretty amazing. One of the most important objectives outlined in the document was to overrun the Israeli military base in Rayim, which is home to the Gaza division responsible for protecting the region. Other bases were also listed that were under that same division's command. And, and Hamas carried out that objective. They did rampage through Rayim and they overran parts of the base. And I would just add, remember, we told you Hamas did gain access to that intel hub. We have no idea if they actually were able to steal sensitive intel, sensitive classified information, including possible nuclear secrets, secrets about Iran, et cetera, from Israel. But they did seem to have access. They knew they, they, they had so much incredible intel about sensitive locations of Israel. It is shocking, truly shocking. And... Um, let's see, uh, all militaries write plans they never use. Israeli officials assess that even if Hamas invaded, they might muster a force of a few dozen, but not the actual hundreds and even thousands of terrorists who came in and invaded and attacked. Israel also misread Hamas's actions. Remember, Hamas negotiated for permits to allow 
Palestinians to go and work in Israel. Israel took that as a sign that Hamas was not looking for war. Pretty amazing. And uh, analysts wrote in an assessment about the document, quote, Hamas had decided to plan a new raid unprecedented in scope. They said Hamas intended to carry out a deception operation followed by a large-scale maneuver, hoping to overwhelm the Gaza division. Um, but they basically dismissed it and said that it's a compass. They said Hamas didn't have enough of a detailed game plan. This was just like a, a theoretical goal of theirs, an aspiration, an ambition, but they didn't believe that it was practical. Meanwhile, the colonel in the Gaza division, he said it was a totally imaginative scenario, according to the New York Times. He said, let's wait patiently. And there was a back and forth. Some people supported the analyst who originally said, listen, they're training for this. This is really going to happen. But she, even her uh, emails did not predict that any kind of war was imminent. And the analyst did not challenge the conventional wisdom among Israeli intel that Yahya Sinwar was not interested in war with Israel. So that was kind of their uh, assumption. That was kind of their presumption. Pretty stunning. Meanwhile, the Guardian newspaper says that Hamas, their terrorists were equipped with detailed maps, and they said it had to have been compiled using covert inside information about IDF bases. This is amazing. They're saying that a terrorist who was, I guess, killed by the IDF during the attack, so they found a, they found a map, they found maps on the terrorist, and that included precise lists of bases and outposts, outposts that had to have been compiled based on spies, actual spies within the Israeli government. There was a thorough map of an Israeli military base, and they say compiling such a map need to ha- needed to have had inside knowledge, almost certainly from a Hamas spy. That's according to the Guardian. Laptops and handwritten notebooks refer to Hamas plans to target military locations, key points in central Israel. And they actually were planning, it seems, to, to penetrate dozens of miles into the country. But again, they had maps with very detailed instructions and very detailed maps of, uh, of, of Israeli military bases, things that a lot of is- lower-level Israeli troops would not even have. So that's why they think it had to have been some sort of spy. Meanwhile, Hamas terrorists carried instructions on how to take hostages. They had a Hebrew-Arabic phrase book to help communicate with the hostages. And part of this information is based on analysis of mobile phones, computers, and documents, which were seized um, in Gaza by the IDF over the course of the war. So really, really stunning. Meanwhile, in America, Muslim voters are revolting against Joe Biden. And Muslim voters, and this is a very big deal, because I'm going to read you some data over here, where Biden, without the Muslim vote in 2020, Biden would not have won the election. I'm telling you, the the election swings based on about five or six big cities, Philadelphia, Detroit, Michigan, Georgia, cities in Georgia. So you're talking about literally 100,000 people determine who wins the election in the in those swing states? It's pretty shocking. So I'm going to read you the numbers here that how the Muslim vote made the difference. They're saying they're willing to sabotage Biden. These Muslim voters they're trying to intimidate Democrats to basically support a ceasefire, pressure Israel into a ceasefire. Muslim Americans revolting against Biden, trying to cause a shakeup. Um, Muslims in several key swing states are launching an abandoned Biden campaign because he supports Israel. This weekend, Muslim leaders from Michigan, Minnesota, Arizona, Wisconsin, Florida, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, listen to those states, swing states, scheduled to meet in Dearborn, Michigan, to protest against President Biden. And they say they know that this could hurt Biden and could actually help Trump, and they don't care. Muslim leaders acknowledge their action of not supporting Biden could result in Trump winning the election. But they say that 
they're hoping that it'll give Democrats the realization they need to recalibrate. This is pretty amazing. So listen to an Axios review of the 2020 results show that if a sliver of Arab and Muslim American voters stay home or defect to Republican, Biden could lose. In Michigan, Biden won in 2020 by 154,000 votes. The, the census estimates say that the Arab American population is about 278,000. And Biden only won by 154,000 in Michigan. In Arizona, Biden won by 10,500 votes. The Arab American population in Arizona is estimated at 60,000. Biden won Georgia by 11,800 votes. Again, it was neck and neck. And Arab American population in Georgia is about 57,000. So they think if they put pressure, they could actually, you know, really, really scare the Biden administration and, and the Democrats and Joe Biden, the candidate. The head of the National Women's Law Center, Fatima Goss Graves, she cannot define what a woman is. She's the head of the National Women's Law Center. Pretty ironic. She encourages women who are forced to compete against men in women's sports to lose gracefully. I mean, she's clearly not a biologist because we know from Katanji Brown-Jackson, right, that how am I supposed to know what a woman is if I'm not a biologist? All right, Mike Johnson, he decided to blur. By the way, Kevin McCarthy it has announced that he is stepping down. He's actually not going to run for re-election in Congress after he, of course, was ousted as Speaker of the House. Now, it's pretty interesting. Well, obviously, Kevin McCarthy, you know, he's going to go make a lot of money. He's very influential, and he'll be able to be a lobbyist to work for companies and, you know, do very, very well, I'm sure, financially in the private sector. But Kevin McCarthy, he really tried. This was his big aspiration, his big hope. He worked very hard, and he thought he could kind of bring the coalition together. He could not. Now, maybe you'll say nobody could. You know, Mike Johnson, you'll say, well, Mike Johnson seems to be doing it so far. We have to wait and see. You know, he's only been at it for a few weeks. Uh, You know, let's uh, let's see, you know, how long they give him before they pounce. But uh, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope he does manage to pull the coalition together. But, you know, Kevin McCarthy kind of feel bad for because he really was sincere. He really did try. And it's like impossible because the Republicans are their own worst enemy, I think. But anyway, Mike Johnson, he's going to release the photo, the, the, the footage of January 6th as promised. And, uh, but the problem is the FBI, the law enforcement, they use it to prosecute these protesters. So they're going to blur the, blur the images of the January 6th protesters before they release the footage. They're going to blur the images. Pretty amazing, right? In order to, uh, make sure that they, uh, law enforcement, the FBI prosecutors can't identify the protesters and use these footage, the footage against them. Now, I find this interesting because Kevin McCarthy said he wouldn't release all the footage, even though he promised to, because of the fact that it could be used to arrest and prosecute the protesters. And even MTG Marjorie Taylor Greene, who wanted them released, she said, yeah, you know, it actually is going to hurt the protesters. Well, isn't this seems like a pretty brilliant solution. I don't know exactly the technical aspect, how long it's going to take, how much money it's going to cost to blur the images. But that's his plan. So I think that's a pretty good plan. And we'll have to wait for next time. Hunter Biden they, he's been subpoenaed to appear before Congress, but he says he only wants to do it in a publicly televised hearing. And for some reason, the Republicans are saying no. The Republicans are saying, at least Stefanik says, no, 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 no. It's got to be a deposition. They don't, they're worried that he's going to use it as a theater, as like a spectacle. They're, they're worried because the Democrats also get to question him. They're worried that the Democrats are going to manipulate it to actually make Hunter Biden appear, you know, give him a, place a positive spin on things and kind of help his cause and help the Bidens versus hurting them. But I don't know, to me, if you can get Hunter Biden there under oath in a live televised hearing, you do it. Okay, call his bluff, because this is what the, the lawyers want. They want they want the Republicans to say, oh, no, no, thanks. We don't want to do this 
because they don't want Hunter Biden. That's what I would think, that they don't want him to testify. I think they're, this is like a game where it's like a chess match where, all right, well, I, I'm willing to comply with your subpoena, but only in public, hoping the Republicans will then decline. I say, let, let, let them at it. Let, let, you know, how great would that be to let the Republicans? Yeah, I understand the Democrats have their side, have their chance. And Hunter Biden will come prepared. But, I mean, there are very tough questions he's got to answer. And he's guilty of so many crimes, allegedly. And, like, how can you not grab that opportunity? So we will keep an eye on that. That's going to do it for today. And we will see you next time.